Welcome to RPG Coast to Coast. My name is Courtney Campbell. I run the blog Hack and Slash. I'm very confused and I don't have any idea what I'm doing. Confused is the natural state of the human condition. Um, well, this is Bad Mike, and uh, I am—I um, work for Frog Guy Games in the customer service department. I'm, actually, I'm also a co-founder of the North Texas RPG Com, which will be celebrating our 11th year this year. And I've been buying, selling, and trading RPGs online since 1994. Well, I am uh, Alexander McCreese. Uh, AKA Archon. I'm the studio head of Autark and designer of Adventure Conquer King System, um, which started up in 2011. And that leaves me. My name is Douglas Cole. I'm Gaming Ballistic, um, author and designer of the Dragon Heresy role playing game, as well as licensee to Steve Jackson Games for the Dungeon Fantasy role playing game and the Fantasy Trip. And I'm drinking cranberry juice and rum. Wine is my beverage of choice today. Oh, you gotta take it easy. Okay, you just want to just want to lay back. It's Friday. You know, it's Friday night. Go ahead. Yeah, it's a big glass of wine. Well, one of the things I wanted to talk about this week, and um, uh, we can talk about whatever anybody else wants to talk about, but um, um, just I'm just going to lightly touch on the. Uh, without touching on it, the Zach Smith uh, imbroglio. Um, I had a thought this week about uh, art and the artist, and there's a lot of talk uh, online about um, art, not the artist, or artist, not the art. Um, uh, everybody here, I'd like to your opinions of, um, when you look at a, a work of gaming, um, what importance does the author, the author, or the author's um, history or reputation or doings have on your ability or your um, your uh, uh, effort to want to play their games, or does it matter at all, or should it? <clears throat> Bad Mike. I think that the present is the degeneracy of the past writ large. There's there's no culture. There's no time that another culture, another time is going to consider correct. If, if we want to experience culture, we're just going to have to accept that people are dicks. <laughs> well, by, well, the internet, we know that because we have the internet now. We know that every other person is a dick. I, I mean, like, I, I wrote a steampunk roguelike, and I did a lot of research into Victorian-era literature, dime novels, the pulps. And you just can't do that if you're going to judge people based on their m current moral purity. I mean, it was the Victorian era. They believed that, you know, well, all kinds of crazy things. Well, that, that's a good point, too. Is in some of the, um, the appendix and fathers of our hobby, uh, two in particular, H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard, um, have had some... Um, really bad uh, hits to the reputation in the last decade because of the changing mores of our society. Uh, uh, Lovecraft I mean, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, was it, well, Lovecraft was a racist, uh, a repentant racist, and uh, Howard Marion Zimmer Bradley uh, had some part in founding NAMBLA. I mean, like, sure, yeah. what are you going to do? Right. 
and you, you can either i mean you, it's it the hobby is so steeped in the works of uh lovecraft and howard that you have to make a decision whether or not you're going to accept them as people as people of their time i mean or, humanity or, is steeped sure. in the bullshit from everybody i mean it's just like i don't know um it seems it seems a bit of uh just just angsty worrying about art versus the artist i understand but um but I'm, I'm basing this on what people are saying right now um uh case in point um if somebody in the gaming industry publishes something that uh is real, real well written yet their reputation comes out and they've done something immoral um you're, you're having basically a lot of people say well we, we can't play that game anymore that game can't be played at our conventions and we don't, yeah. want, we don't want, even want it to be sold in stores anymore I, I just want to really quick, I want to say my experiences over reading Reddit in just the last 48 hours make me think all those people are horrible, and I hope I never have to look at what they have to say again. I, I, and I'm with you on that. I agree, but this is this is the world we live in, and I'm interested in hearing uh, uh, Doug's in a... Um, yes, I'll be quiet now. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I just... No, I'm, no I'm, I was going to say I'm interested in hearing Doug's, Doug's opinion, but I, actually I'm really interested in hearing... Um, um alex's opinion because i know that this touches on a lot of things that happened with adventure conquer king uh, about a year or so back oh uh, boy this is uh you know it, it's uh it, it's hard to address this topic without uh being slimed by one brush or another um I think it's a lot easier to deal with things in theory, like Lovecraft's racism, product of the times, the Victorian belief that some cultures and peoples were just simply better than others, um, which was a very real uh, belief. Um, most peoples and cultures have had a uh, belief that they were the chosen one. I believe the word Lakota means the people. <laughs> so so you, you get this othering as as part of culture and you know we seem to be going to great lengths to define the other as everyone who's not me and i don't like living that way it sets people who i like against each other uh and frequently these days one is forced to choose sides um you know, that being said, you know, there are some, th I, I, I have, you know, the, the, I, I really don't want to address the, the Zach situation because I, you know, I was talking in more general terms too. We don't have, so in, in, in general that. terms, I think there's two things. One is, um, one is, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I'm conflicted on this on a lot of different levels, I guess. Um, the the and I, I've tried to avoid wading into it. I guess what I'd say in general is sometimes, you know, the fact that somebody's kind of I mean, look at look at Bill Gates and um, uh, Apple. God, Steve Jobs. Like if you've seen the the HBO show, I think it was uh, a Pirates of Silicon Valley. These people were not nice. Bill Gates is gotten nicer over time but back in the day these guys were d-bags man and really mean people but look what they built 
right? I mean, how do you want to do I mean, so what do you say? Well, yeah, I mean, they built some really amazing things for computers. And at the time that they were doing that, they bludgeoned and hacked and sorry, sorry, Jordy. <laughs> I was going to say and hacked and slashed, but that's just me. Um, but right, they, 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 they bulldozed their way through a lot of probably nice, eager people to get where they are. So they're flawed, failed human beings like we all are. And they built something great. Well, if, you, if, you, if, yeah. if, you, if you want to look at our own hobby, um, you know, uh, Gary kind Gygax. Kind of deliberately not, actually. Well, I, <laughs> let, let, let's throw it back some. Uh, Gary Gygax is probably not the most exemplar human being if you look at uh, some of the stuff that happened while he worked with TSR. I've, uh, as guests for NTRPGCon, I've had a lot of confidential and, you know, really close conversations with some of the people who work for him. And a lot of people were, were really happy when Lorraine, when Lorraine Williams took over. Which is, which seems to be against the general, you know, the general storyline that oh god, this horrible person came in and kicked Gary out. A lot of people that I've talked to that worked back then were like, yeah, you know what, we finally got paid on time, and you know, Gary wasn't a very good boss, <laughs> and and he did a lot of really morally repugnant things while he was, you know, head of TSR. But you know, we we all play D and D, and we don't. I don't think we we angst about that, do we? That, that maybe what, the what did he do? What did he do? That was terrible. Uh, he just well, he was not a very good uh, businessman. He was not a very good boss, and he left his wife during uh, the time he worked at TSR to marry a secretary. Um, which, which I mean, it, it, I mean, we're not talking about any huge moral failings, but we're also it, it, some people have a tendency to put him on a pedestal. When if you look at his, uh, um, his especially his last few years there, when he was uh, in California partying and not. Uh, actually running his company uh, that unfortunately the blooms were running the company into the dirt um he's a nice I'm, example of a boss and I, i've i've talked to people who worked for him and they they were glad that when he left they they were happy I'm sorry I, are you are you pronouncing he's he's a holy saint that committed no wrong and i'm just not hearing it correctly well actually that's that, that's the point is that he wasn't and so what, what do we do we have any angst we're not angsty about playing anything gary wrote because he may have had a few personal failings but, i mean I'm super angst-free. I'm extremely angst-free. I don't. I don't worry about it one bit. <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all. You know, but but if if we held Gary to the same standards we hold people now, you know, who knows if Gary, you know, if that was happening now, if we would worry about it in a different way. And and I just, I, 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 I wonder what our standards, our, our goalposts are changing now. I, I feel very much that the uh, argument is just, it's its like resolved. Like, you know, um, I had this sensation when I was watching all of this begin that that people weren't familiar with the death of the author. And I mean, like, it's been pretty well hashed out, right? Like, there's always going to be people out there who want to claim that something is forbidden. And there's always going to be people out there who are like, well, we don't care. It's all just stuff. I mean, there's not really anything forbidden. And they're going to fight. And that's just always going to be that way. Oh, that's a good point. This, this is nothing new, and it's nothing that's going to change in the future, right? I, I'm sorry, my daughter came in the room. Was that? No, I was saying that, that that you're absolutely right. This is nothing new, and this is nothing that's going to change in the future. I mean, our our standards are always going to change to where something that's you know let's you know take. For example, to take Lovecraft and just something that was okay at his time and then it's not okay now, that doesn't mean we don't 
does that I mean a lot of people that means we don't read Lovecraft anymore and they and then people have explicitly stated that uh, if you look at um, Necronomicon uh, was it Necronicon the convention those, those that, people uh, are what I'm saying is those people are just prudes I don't care what they say right and you and I can say that but the problem is this this is a, an attitude that's um, we, we just had today where Gen, Gen Con is banned uh, banned Zach Smith he's 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 been non-person at Gen Con right. he he's reaping what he what he sowed right and and I, I agree with that I mean if it, if if you're accused of that and you get banned from a convention that's the convention's it, purview I, I've seen that a lot this week it's not the accusation it's the behavior like the, the accusation is just the, the the rock they pulled out of the dam that caused it to break but like the behavior if he was like an upright person who wasn't a you know who wasn't the way he was, this wouldn't have gone the way that it did. Well, move. I mean, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to specifically focus. Oh, on but you that. did. We, I know. we did. We're there. <laughs> we that happened. To. We I, had to, to pull, I need to pull a line from my four-year-old. You started it. It's the subject du jour. We had, I mean, obviously it's, it's on our minds and it's sitting there. It's the subject du jour, but I was speaking in more general terms, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And in the case of that individual, it was, uh, it was just something that, you know, that form going to follow function. I have to disagree a little bit with the idea that this is just how it's always been. I think there's been a real change in Western civilization in that we no longer have a shared moral consensus in the way that we used to up until recently. Um, and when, it has, when did we have that? When did we have the shared moral consensus? for most of Western civilization in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation. Well, what about Asia? What about uh, Asia is not part of the West. Uh, so uh, it's irrelevant to what I'm talking so, about. Please let so me So you're finish. saying like the, the West- Please let me finish. Is, you let me say okay. two sentences. Let me finish. <laughs> okay, sorry. Christ. All right, so if you, look at, if you look at what happened in the Protestant Reformation, there was a massive breach in the moral consensus of the society, and it turned into first a culture war and then a violent war. And the violent war lasted a really long time, and a lot of people got killed until eventually they said, you know, we should probably just all agree to disagree. And agreeing to disagree was called tolerance, and that became part of the shared moral consensus because our forefathers learned that the alternative is you slaughter each other. Uh, and wipe out 25% of the population of Germany, which is what happened in the Thirty Years' War. We have now forgotten that. We have forgotten the point of tolerance, which is that a tolerant society is one that can avoid violence by allowing people who disagree to live next to each other in peace. And I think we're on route towards very bad things. Well, they 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 did it right, like like in in uh, Russia and uh, uh, Italy and 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 when they instituted the communist states, they, they had, they, they eliminated the wrong thinkers. Right. But the problem is, is that more people are just going to be born that are wrong thinkers. Well, I agree that that's why one should not engage yeah, in that no. methodology because it, it leads to genocide. Yeah. You just continually but, kill more and more of your population as you become more and more as they fail purity tests. Right. Right. But the, the alternative it's, 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 to that, yeah, therefore, it's a, very Thanos, that, it's a very Thanos philosophy. Yeah, so the alternative, therefore, is then don't have purity tests, right? Be tolerant. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I mean, that's kind of, it's, is that not what I've basically been saying is that, the, the, you know, I don't worry about the creator uh, because I'm not sure that my own moral position or judgment is superior to anyone else's. Right, right. 
I didn't mean to run over you, Alex. I'm sorry. It's all right. I'll just bite your hand off. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's a passionate subject, and I've been thinking about it all week. It's something I've been been mulling over my head because uh, I I don't know if I want somebody to tell me what I can and can't play based. I I, I get mad when people tell me I can't read Lovecraft or Robert E. Howard, Um, and, and people have told me that. They, they said that's not right, that it's not something that should be taught taught anymore. That's not something that should be referenced anymore. So I, I'm oppositional. I would, I, for years, don't listen to those people. They just keep telling you what you can and can't do, whatever. Well, that's well and good until those people end up being in charge of the Amazon marketplace and remove books from circulation, or they end up in charge of your libraries or your school curriculum, and then you have to fight. And yeah, that is a problem. What, whether that is by fighting on your electoral commission or whether it turns out to be second amendment. But at some point people have to say, I will fight for freedom of speech or freedom of speech will be lost. I will fight for the right to read what the fuck I want. Yeah. But anybody having a discussion in a public space where, uh, that, that you, you expect to have multiple viewpoints is going to get smeared by like an extremist group with a whole bunch of slurs that aren't accurate. Really, that's never happened to me, but I, I can imagine <laughs> that in serious. I mean, like, I don't mean to be too pointed. Um, I'm, I'm a victim too, right? Like, like my post about not getting involved anymore and, and saying that, you know, like we shouldn't listen to extremist groups got me smeared as, you know, an extremist. It's very, it, it's ridiculous. Like, like, but I think it, nobody's buying into it. You know, I think the majority of the people realize, like, when I say majority, I mean, 60 plus percent realize that's just bullshit. And we're dealing with like uh, 18% of people just doing this thing. The thing is, you don't need much more than 18%, right? There's a, there's a whole theory on uh, social preference and preference, preference falsification. So if you have a small committed minority that can intimidate the rest of the people and uh, the rest of the people feel that they can't tell who is with and who is with who is not with them, they will stay silent and allow that vocal minority to dominate the conversation. And it requires a cascade, a a preference cascade to break that, such as happened with the fall of um, communism. So, yeah, yeah, it may only be 18 percent, but if they're the loud 18 percent and Everyone else is just kind of quiet and says, well, I'm glad they're not attacking me. I hope they eat me last. Oh, whatever. Like, then they win. We, we, yeah, I, I think, I think what this comes down to is I'm bullish and Alex is bearish. We've had this discussion back and forth a couple of times uh, forever. Well, I'll, I'll give it a small example. We had um, issues uh, that I won't go into about the NTRPG con and, um, we we had a call on a uh, on a on a very large uh, social media site to boycott our convention and to please call our 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 uh, hotel and see if they can get us kicked out of the hotel and and the issue was very minor it was really it was actually really silly um, so we did warn the we did warn the hotel they might get calls and and they did get calls they got two <laughs> two. <laughs> Two calls and and they laughed. They, they they told us and we laughed and they laughed too. So in that case, we we were lucky that it was it was not a consensus. It was it was a, it was a lot of uh, sound and fury signifying nothing. Thank goodness it was a, a bunch of people that um, wanted to affect the marketplace, so to speak, and weren't able to. But but as Alex said, uh, um, you you always walk a tightrope. You don't know if if that's the case this time or not. You know, DOS Machine said something interesting about, you know, um, where SJWs came from and destabilizing societies. 
Uh, Eric Scott Raymond, uh, who is the creator of the open source software movement, has a great essay on his site called Gramsian Damage, and its sequel is called Suicidalism that discusses that very topic. I, I, it's really good reading um, if you sort of want to understand um, mimetic, mimetic warfare. I don't even know how to spell that, but, I, but it still sounds interesting. I can try and dig up the link for you guys. I, I want to say, even though that we're talking about this, that the positions that people hold are nuanced. I, I see people typing uh, the uh, social justice warrior pe pejorative in chat or whatever. Um, I, I think that I I like people being represented more openly. Like I think there's a lot of positive aspects and nuance to everything from all the political topics. The the the, the point. I think that I was making earlier and that Alex was alluding to is that if you're trying to have an open discussion, uh, there are people on the extremes who want to shut it down or uh, coercively control it. It's true. I see Peck's comment in there. And, the, and also, you, it doesn't matter whose ox is getting gored, too, because... Uh, Let's say tomorrow that um, I won't even uh, let's just throw uh, let's say some high executive of Wizards of Coast is is um, uh, caught in a pedophile ring, and so he so we, we do, do we not I mean nobody nobody would would say we're not going to play Dungeons and Dragons anymore, right? I mean that that would be a non-starter because that's that's they're the eight hundred pound gorilla. I mean that that wouldn't be the case where we would say oh well we're definitely uh, this is this is going to be. Uh, we we can't take the uh, the the art here. We're going to have to toss that out. It, it it is interesting because every now and then something happens, or you know, you know, like the 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 allegations that you know Facebook or Google or Amazon or whomever is is manipulating um, algorithms or steering or whatever. I'm not arguing truth or falsehood of it. There comes a point where some of these services or platforms and Dungeons and Dragons being the 800 pound gorilla of our hobby is a great example. Um, it would take an awful big lever to make people give up that, whether it's financial investment or emotional investment. Um, it's a big ship to steer, you know, um, and, you know, it, it, I don't know, it's, it's tough. Well, good. well, uh, segueing from that, from from my very touchy, testy topic there, um, one of the things that we were gonna, we were going to discuss is the longevity of D and D. Um, well, let's let's go ahead and move on to that then. Um, uh, my my my, uh, my assertion has always been that uh, as as D and D goes, uh, the the RPG hobby goes, and I, I think I, I think we've had more than enough evidence of that over the past four decades. Uh, anybody uh, have an opinion on that? Well, I think I think role-playing games have network effects. So the value of a rule set uh, scales with the number of people that play using those rules. And so that tends to allow whoever is the dominant player to stay the dominant player. And I think in many ways, it was misunderstanding those network effects um, is what fucked Wizards and allowed Paizo to grow with Pathfinder because, you know, the Pathfinder community basically 
offered a rule set um, that gave continuity with what was already being played for a large sum of players. Um, I, I think there's specific reasons why D&D is also successful relative to other RPGs, but I think that network effect can't be discounted. It's like you pulled the words out of my mouth. I think there are specific reasons why D&D is more successful than other role-playing games. Let's hear them. Hey, go for no, it. I was. Oh, uh, you, oh, we oh, can oh, start I, with I, yours. Let me let me play because I'm the, the one who's mostly learning here. Um, you know, I, I think a couple of things. One is D and D is based on the collective mythology of Western civilization, and and most people who are who are buying it and playing it right now have been exposed to Greek mythology and Norse mythology and uh, knights in shining armor and that kind of thing. Uh, and also, relatively speaking, making a character and starting play is a very low barrier to entry. It's it's not front loaded. The only some of the games like the OSR games and like the West End games D six are even less front loaded than than say Fifth Edition is. But like a game like Swords and Wizardry or Weg D six or the Fantasy Trip, uh, you can have a group of ten or fifteen people playing in less than an hour. Sometimes much less than an hour. So between a low barrier to entry and uh, being based in really a touchstone that a lot of people can relate to, um, it's gonna it's gonna be hard to dislodge for good reasons. I think the the cultural touchstone is in fact part of the low barrier to entry. Um, if you compare to like, hey, we're gonna play Tekumel, what's that? You hand them, you know, essentially a, 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 a pseudo Bible, and they just right. are like, yeah. Maybe Shadowrun, yeah. same way. First, yeah, first read all of the Wheel of Time series, then come back to me. Exactly. Uh, no. Yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah. Nobody's ever done <laughs> that, so stop that, Douglas. Stop. <laughs> I actually had a girlfriend who despised and salted the ground that I walked on call me out of nowhere after she had finished that book and say, we met over this one, and now we're done, and it was a good book, and now I'm never going back to never talking to you again. I'm like, okay, bye. I'm glad we uh, finished that up. Yeah, that took her like what, thirteen years though? No, twenty yeah, twenty-one we, years. <laughs> we, we we met long after the series had started, but your point is still well taken. Um, but no, I, I uh, Alec, I, I agree completely that, that that I was actually thinking mechanical barrier to entry since I'm a GURPS guy. Um, but uh, you know, it's you know, you can t you can easily teach almost anybody to play D and D. Um, you know, and, and rules be damned. Tell me what you're going to do. And it's chunky enough, and, and especially if it's a game like Swords and Wizardry, or again, West End, you know, tell me what your Star Wars character is going to do. Okay, roll some dice. Oh, you rolled well. Yay, you swing across the chasm, firing and dodging blasters on the way. Play the, the theme music. Um, but the successful games are, are uh, playing power chords with our emotions and our aspirations, and D&D &D does it very well. So D&D &D is sort of the... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead, Alex. You were going to say something in response to that. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say that D&D &D is the... Um, so, so we all agree that's it's it's the trendsetter in the industry. So where, where do we see it in, tw let's say, 20 years? Um, are we, are we going to have uh, VR games? Or is this, does pen and paper survive another uh, generation? Well, in a sense, we already have VR games. Um, I mean, if you look at some of the MMORPGs, if you play them with an Oculus headset, you're pretty close. Uh, I, I think 
as people spend more time in front of their computer screen, you know, the personal interaction of, of getting together with friends and, you know, eating Cheetos and playing feels more meaningful perhaps than it used to. But, you know, even there, what do we see? So many folks are playing online anyway. I, I, I don't have great comfort in being a prognosticator of 20 years out. I think if there's going to be an EMP pulse and we'll probably all just be eating MREs and living like zombies. It's kind of like the, the old um, predict the year 2000 back in 1950, and they had us all flying around in cars and stuff. And yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that, Alex. I, I, don't, I don't know if we can predict that. I, I think we'll, we'll slowly see more and more aspects of Dungeons & Dragons moving online just simply because it makes it easier to find players and find groups. Um, one of the reasons I, I, I had a very successful Skype game for years is simply because I couldn't find enough people around me to play D&D with anymore. And and uh, Skype and now roll you know roll twenty and other various systems make that much much easier. Totally, uh, you know, in terms of mechanical reasons for D and D success, uh, two I think that uh, I found um, very important uh, niche protection. I think D and D and a small number of other games do an excellent job of letting each person at the table, even if there's eight of them, feel like they have some very different style of play and some unique specialties. And I think if you look at the games that have historically been the most successful, they've historically all had lots and lots of different niches to fill. So that would be, so those genres are cyberpunk plus, plus magic, which is Shadowrun, um, and fantasy and uh, superheroes. Um, and then genres that uh, tend to limit your number of niches tend to not be as popular, like World War II or Wild West, um, and for those to thrive, they ultimately need to have magic or something like that tacked onto them to create more niches and more variety of characters. So I think I that's actually, a I'm huge sorry, advantage sorry. for D&D. For and, and, and I would agree with that and, and sort of double down and say that while a World War II game where you're playing a GI, which you know means general issue, um, don't do well, but if you're playing a SWAT game or a Special Forces game or you know, the the small tactical team where everyone has their role, even if they're all soldiers, you know, those games do quite well, both online and face-to-face um, for the exact same reasons. You have niche protection. You've got your guy who throws down a lot of lead. You've got your sneaky guy. You've got your precision shooter. You've got your explosive guy. You've got your medic. Got to have a medic. Got to have everyone that needs a cleric. Um, and, uh, so, you know, that, those kinds of games give everyone spotlight time. Yeah. And I think they let each person feel like their character is unique and special and has agency in the world. You know, you know, one of the interesting things, and I didn't realize this as I was actually playing the game, but the gumshoe engine, um, Ken Height laid down what the game was really doing for me and it changed my my opinion of how it was played, but not only does Gumshoe, and I'm thinking specifically of Knights Black Asians, but any of the Gumshoe Asians, like you know uh, Trail of Cthulhu, uh, the currency of your character is not uh, skill, and it took me a long time to realize that um, the currency of your character is screen time. So if you've got somebody who's rifle eight and you blow all eight points in one thing, you've just used up your aliquot of screen time for that episode. It's not, you know, and, and 
you might you'll be amazing and you'll succeed spectacularly and people will tell stories of this particular sniper shot for all of time but that was your one cool scene if you wanted more cool spotlight time then you should have rationed your points so that was that's a to, to reinforce the point about about spotlight time that's a game that does it mechanically See, you've just made me never want to play Gumshoe. I don't like games like yeah, that at all. It sounded very fate-like. I was wondering if that was slipping into the conversation. So, it, but it, it was interesting because I was expecting because my medic character had a high rating that he would always be good, and then I ran out of points. And I'm like, well, now my guy's like, like, because he forgot his entire med school education, right? Uh, because of the way that you spend the points and they'd have to refresh and all that stuff. But in, in the context of, you know, kind of spotlight time in a TV show, the system makes more sense. It's not for every – I actually want to play it under a competent GM uh, or whatever you call it in Gumshoe with my newfound understanding, but I, I haven't. I, the last time I played it was with my misapprehension on what the points were representing. So I hated it. <laughs> um, but I'd be interested in playing it with that philosophy in mind. Well, looking at um, RP, so Dawn of RPGs, um, 19, uh, mid-70s, uh, we had Dungeons & Dragons. Um, really, the, the only thing that's... I'm trying to think what survived... The, one of the oldest RPGs, I think Call of Cthulhu was 80 or 81. Um, anything older than that that's still continually being published that would... That's being played regularly. I mean, I, well, somebody really cast, yeah. Well, somebody cast Probably. resurrection on a fantasy trip recently. Yeah, TFT, but but that wasn't that. They had a real long period where nobody played it. What twenty years when they were just kind of was there, but it wasn't being published. I mean, do we have anything yeah. continually being published since then? Traveler Dragons. Tra 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 Traveler. Traveler's been through a few editions. I'm sorry. Would you say a hack? I didn't hear. Or Courtney, I didn't hear. Pal Palladium Shadowrun. Yeah, Shadowrun. Yeah. Shadowrun was what eighty three, eighty. I can't remember eighty two. Or it was a little yeah, farther. Yeah, down. and all this. No, no, stuff. it was further closer to the nineties. The, okay, the first yeah, edition was Eddie. very early, though, right? So well, while RPGs have had quite, you know, quite long, a lot of longevity there, um, specific RPGs really, there's really only a handful that have actually made it through what two generations now. Shadowrun was nineteen eighty nine first edition. Yeah, I'm oh, looking so at nineteen eighty nine. So yeah, farther back than that, we're, we're really looking at um, just really D and D, Call of Cthulhu, and I guess Traveler. Though Traveler's had several editions. Well, uh, Palladium, Kevin, Kevin Sambaugh. Yeah, yeah. Is he he's still publishing now though? Did did they? Eh, eh, it's like a one? it's like a setting sun, from the what I understand. Uh, GURPS first edition was eighty six. Yeah, you know, I thought it was earlier than that, but you're right, Douglas. Uh, it was so mid eighties. So really Palladium similar, with 1981. Palladium with 1981, yeah, I remember. Okay, so that that's, has been around quite a bit, but that that's kind of like, like Courtney said. That's that's sort of you know sinking. That's that's not really a popular. I mean, you go to a convention, not find one Palladium game in most you know mid mid sized conventions. Um, so yeah, yeah. So so even though we have had RPGs around since mid 70s, we we don't have a continual run of the same you know, RPG. I mean, except for Dungeons and Dragons, really. And, and I guess you could sit, throw Call of Cthulhu in there, which is really odd, considering a horror game uh, had that much longevity to be able to survive that long. Yeah, although Call of Cthulhu has never been much of a large market share product, so I, 
it's much easier to sustain an ongoing niche than to try and compete with the big boy and last. Yeah, because Call of Cthulhu might be might be more uh, popular now than it was in 1981. Probably, I, it, it undoubtedly is more popular now. Right. What I, what I meant is that like there's nothing that D&D is going to do with D&D that would attack Call of Cthulhu, right? Whereas improvements to D&D may attract people away from Palladium games or the fantasy trip. Well, that, that's that, that's kind of what happened with Tunnels and Trolls, right? I mean, it popped up about the same time, and that just kind of petered out, and Dungeons and Dragons just rolled on like a juggernaut. Oh, you know, speaking of Tunnels and Trolls, we probably shouldn't forget the Lone Wolf and the Fighting Fantasy series by Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston in the UK as long-standing games. Different Steve Jackson. Rollmaster. Rollmaster was being published in the early 80s. And That's still, true, yeah. Yeah, still and hanging Rollmaster in there. Was, Rollmaster was both Merp and Ringworld, right? Or was that uh, RuneQuest? There was also, it just was Rollmaster. There was Rollmaster, there was... Um, uh, the 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 Middle Earth, and they would have they had a few uh they had the Elric game right no no was that no Elric was uh was used RuneQuest I have Elric yeah that was called yeah um Chaosium started it I think yeah right right I mean I guess we should say RuneQuest as well as Call of Cthulhu it's a similar system and it, you know it's still around yeah you know there was a time with RuneQuest. Along with Tunnels and Trolls, they were kind of all just there, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons, it was like a horse race, you know, you had all these horses, and Dungeons and Dragons just kind of pulled away from from RuneQuest and Tunnels and Trolls. And I think the things that Doug brought up earlier were a big part of that, which is it was a lot easier to play than RuneQuest. Uh, Tunnels and Trolls always seemed kind of kind of twee to me. It was just kind of, I don't know, it just kind of just didn't hit that spot the way Dungeons and Dragons Well, did. we're talking about the longevity of Dungeons and Dragons, and, and I think that... I think that some of that has to do with campaign length and what you're saying about tunnels and trolls there, there aren't enough widgets in simple games to easily run campaigns that last three years. Like you can run a basic or a, especially a first edition D and D game for 80 sessions without any sort of issue because there's always something the characters could be working on doing or improving. But when you simplify everything down to one or two universal mechanical systems, it, it, it reduces the things the player characters have to strive for uh, both in the game world and, and, and mechanically for their characters. That's a really good point. Yeah, absolutely. That's why a lot of the story games have no real campaign play aspect to them, for instance. I, I I mean I think it's I think it's it, it literally has to do with the number of separate modular systems. I think each additional modular system will drive weeks of play for the for the characters to get under control. Someone should create a version of D and D with a whole series of modular systems for end game play. It would I be wonder. Big. Did did. <laughs> Modular Big. systems, like when you say modular systems, you don't mean modules. You mean he he means adventure, conqueror, king. Which anybody? No, no, no. no, I, no I, I understand what Alex means, but when you say modules, you mean mechanical modules, not like B two X four. Yeah, no, I mean not core mechanical systems. Right. Mini games and video game parlance. Yeah, that that has a lot to do with sustained campaign play. D and D. I think is super popular for a couple other reasons. Um, first, it, you keep score. 
not many role playing games just have a high score, and D and D you have a high score. Yeah. Uh, the early sessions with with Gygax, from the descriptions of what happened, it sounds very much like uh, a real world, multi massively online uh, MMO. Right? The players were in competition with each other. There were hundreds. They met at his house five or six nights a week. He ran them all evening, and so they would track and try and be the first to do different things. And there was inner competition. Drove a lot of the early growth. Awesome. And then for the same reason, we find things like Factorio or Civilization pleasurable. Uh, the game essentially is about uh, erasing the black parts and finding what's there and putting it uh, organized. And you get to do that in the presence of other real human beings, which means it's meaningful. Well, it's even more amazing when you look at what how long this game's been around, the longevity of it, and then you look at the fact these guys had no clue. They had no plan, no clue. Uh, they were just going to make some money. And a lot of steps along the way, if you talk to some of the people that worked for TSR at the time, um, they did stuff that now looks really genius just because they just did it. it there wasn't any master plan. It was just, um, we're going to put this out because they need a beginning module. And then, boom, you have uh, Keep on the Borderlands, which has become a touchstone for so many generations and that wasn't no nobody at the time thought well this is going to be the just the perfect beginning module for people who have never played the game before um and th th there's a hundred cases of that all through D's history yeah i do wonder sometimes whether or not for instance the popularity of hit points is a mechanic that now has even made its way into most video games you know is that is that a, a path-dependent outcome like the QWERTY keyboard? Or is that the case that they actually hit on a mechanic that was very fruitful um, and oh. it was a for, fortuitous accident? I think, I think as a programmer, um, just the way I think simple programs would track things is they would just have a single uh, variable, the growing integer in it, and it kind of leads towards things having hit point bars. Right, but when they came up with the hit point, was it because I mean everything D and D based came out of war, pretty much came out of war games. Is is that a, is that a war game conceit that I'm just not aware of? I mean, I, mean, I want to say if I remember Peterson's story, that it was first it was just number of hits that had to be made simultaneously, and I think they borrowed hit points from naval war gaming, armor classes. Armor class was still, but it wasn't wasn't variable damage from the same source, or am I misremembering? No, I think you're re remembering correctly. It was yeah. it, D and D characters basically fight like battleships. They shoot each other with cannon. Some of it plinks off their armor, and then eventually they sink. Beautiful. And true. Yeah, I mean, P Peterson's book "Playing at the World" is, you know, like a million pages on, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's already like four inches thick and it's on really thin paper, but there's a lot there if you can get through it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the most boring book on the most interesting topic I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have a, I have a solution. I, I finally read it when, okay. So I read it a couple of years ago. I went on vacation. I said, I'm going to read this damn thing. Cause I would read past the first chapter, get stuck. 
you got to you got to skip the you read the first chapter, skip skip the next three chapters, and go to chapter four, which is the beginning of TSR. <laughs> so skip all skip all the the beginning of War Games, and then just go straight into TSR, and it becomes fascinating. So it's really a lot like Tom Bombadil in Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> but but it, except it's three chapters long, not not yeah, that's not quite Bombadil's not quite as long. I don't know, it felt long to me. <laughs> but what, once you get to the yeah, and then I came went back later and delved into that part. But it, but once the the TSR part to me is fascinating because it he has he has numbers to back everything up, and it's it's really interesting to see how much how much they sold and and how you know how, what they thought they were going to do versus what they did do and and you continually struck by the fact that that these guys had no clue that that this was going to have any sort of effect or the, the effect it had on, on the gaming public. I mean, just just at every at every step, they just thought we're we're making too much of this. You know, we're printing a thousand copies of this. This is this is ridiculous. Uh, well, we got to do it because we're getting a, a discount for printing. You know, and and just to think how many people eventually, you know, in night, I guess eighty three, eighty four was the heyday of the hobby, really, when they were out selling games like Monopoly, and you know, just and they just, you know, they weren't ready for that. But it's just, it's just incredible to think that they they had no I, clue they were going to be there. Now is the heyday of the hobby. Yeah, you're right. You're, they're selling more now than ever. You're, you're correct. But that that was, I guess, that was the first, the hill, I guess, that when they when they got became that popular, they're being mentioned in mass media television uh news stories uh you know i mean when, when you get popular enough that people hate you enough, you know hate you enough to uh to form uh societies like a uh, uh, bad uh, patricia pulling was a deeply severely disturbed woman her son suffered a psychiatric break uh, he was apparently uh living like a wolf in her yard for the eight weeks before he killed himself she once said that she figured um, eight percent of the population was Satanists because she figured four percent of teenagers and four percent of adult males were, and so if you added four and four together, that made eight percent of all people. And when she was told that's not how percentages work, she said it doesn't matter; it's a conservative estimate anyway. She was <laughs> she was she was deeply deluded, deeply ill, and uh, we should have, if anything, uh, empathy for her illness and 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 how terrible her life was. And then that that was so when when you're popular enough to have that to have that happen to you, and, and they weren't ready for that either. They weren't ready when that happened. When they when they had the societies, you know, coming out against their hobby, they it, it's just just amazing how much um, there was so much serendipity involved in in that becoming such a popular hobby. I sometimes wonder if they wouldn't have been better off going the other direction when that happened. You know, they, they what they did is they allowed themselves to be censored and they came out with a D&D cartoon to make it more popular with kids. But as a result, I think D&D lost its sense of being cool that it had in the very early 80s. And, um, yep. and, it, and, and I have often wondered if they had doubled down um, on the edgy side, maybe they would have gone the raggy sort of, way. Yeah, maybe they would have led to, you know, all of those goths and, and white wolf players that came in 10 years later. Maybe we could have captured that audience earlier and, and, gr and kept on growing. Yeah, the, the history of D and D is really interesting. There's, there's, there's a few like intersecting points along there. Um, what if, what if Gary had never been to Hol never went to Hollywood? Uh, what if, uh, Gary had never hooked up with the Blooms? I mean, there's you know three or four times when you you think if it had only gone this way, but I, I think no matter how you do it, um, it would have been less popular than it is now because it would have become any any way you do it besides the way it happened, it would have been more of a niche hobby. 
Although I, I, st I just threw this up in chat. I still, I remember seeing this in ma this ad in magazines and the gigantic smarminess of of this guy and the kids in the background playing the keep on the borderlands and stuff. Um, I, I, uh, I remember thinking, seeing this guy and saying, wow, he's someone who won't hang out with me. <laughs> I was and even then I was, I wasn't even cool enough for the D and D people. But I, I, I remember, I mean, your point about it, you know, the, the planning it for double, doubling down and right. And really pushing it as this is what, uh, the social thing is. I still remember the attempt to, to make it look like that. This is what the, the cool kids did. And I, there was a brief period in the early 80s where, you know, the cool kids were doing it, but it quickly went away. I don't know about that. I was cool the whole time. <sighs> were you a cool kid, I, though? In the sense of that being your your niche within the high school ecosystem. I was I was not popular. So, so say we most of us. Yeah, I was a springboard diver, right? You know, even the swimmers thought the divers were weird. <laughs> the, the, there was a time at the beginning of the hobbies. I remember when um, um, it, it wasn't an issue. It wasn't a nerd hobby yet because it had been it had been a categorized. And we, we would have we would have football players in our games. We would have cheerleaders. We would have everything. And it slowly in the late seventies, it just started. They started peeling off, and they realized, oh, this is kind of this is these are the nerdy, geeky things. So we don't want really to be associated. I, I mean, like my my experience was that um, it was the metalheads. I was an artist, so I hung out with, and they all played. So I didn't I didn't really feel uh, ostracized, you know. When I said I wasn't popular, I wasn't you know the football person or whatever. But looking back and considering how many people are in my friend group, you know. Uh, I think it was pretty normalized, you know. The big concern was getting gas for uh, William's car because he was 16 and had a car, right? <laughs> when did it start? So does anybody remember back then? When do you think it started uh, becoming more stratified? That Well, this is something that geeks and nerds do. We, we don't, this isn't a game we play. Because I, I noticed it probably about pretty early in the hobby, I would say about 1979 or so, I, I started seeing the people that just kind of, Maybe seventy nine to eight. That's all the people in high school started kind of breaking off. Like, well, we don't really belong belong to the D and D club. That's that's not too cool. Yeah, I don't actually ever remember it being causal. You play D and D, so you're a dork until it was popular. Yeah, I, there I were had my I had my outgroup friends, and I straddled because I was a varsity athlete, right? But I was a diver, so I wasn't really an athlete. So, but I was in this weird place in the middle, but my friends were kind of the purposeful out RT crowd and they were all into role playing. We played, you know, we played some D and D we played a different game every week, seemed like and all that. But I don't remember thinking, ever thinking my, I think my mom thought that, but you know, uh, I don't remember thinking, Oh, I'm a dork because I play D and don't think that that's what went on. I think that, because I, we did our own thing, we had the freedom to do whatever we wanted, and we chose to do D&D &D or role-playing game. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I thinking back on my experiences, um, I, I've been gaming my whole life, and there was always people that were doing it. Like some people weren't into it, and and they might have been derisive, but there were always lots of gamers. I mean, we had people come watch our vampire games. I th- that, and that, yeah, I'm that, sure they were watching the a, game. Yeah, <laughs> that's a whole different topic, I think. Well, I mean, it was a big social event, right? You know, uh, like, well, and that's the thing is that I think that the the vampire oh, it's kind of hot and sexy to be a to to be a vampire thing, um, turned the eyes of the genre away from uh, oh, we're out on the side doing our thing, and that's what it is. To uh, no pex, no, no. We um, fight I, I was. I, I'm sorry. No sparkling. I, I was just going to say that. Um, I, I think that uh, the, the 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 vampire only happened because D and D forced us out. I mean, they they made terrible products and then they went under and they weren't publishing anything new. What were we supposed to do? White Wolf is the only company publishing AAA hardcover, nice role-playing games. So we played Aberrant, we played Vampire, we played Werewolf, we played Changeling. That's what was out. That's what they were publishing. That's what we played. But I would have been happy playing D&D if they were releasing something that wasn't terrible, like players' options or whatever they were doing in, in you know, 96 before they got shut down. But when something stagnates, something always grows out of it, right? I mean, when something stagnates, people look elsewhere and say, okay, what else is going on? Because I don't want to do this anymore. That's pretty much what happened to D and D in the mid nineties. So I have a theory that something is cool if it affords the opportunity for young people to get wealthy quickly. So, for instance, being a movie actor, being a model, being a sports star, being a rock musician. Um, so if it can, if, if X can make you rich while you're still young, X is cool. Being an accountant can make you rich, but you're 50, not cool. Being a rock star, you can be rich by 22, cool. So I think, I wonder, you know, video games, if, if you look at pop culture, became cool at some point, like when MTV's Cribs started having every car and house had an Xbox in it, and all these athletes were talking about gaming and whatnot. And I think that's because as tech took off, it became obvious that tech and video games was a way to get rich um, really quickly as a young person. So, you know, I think we should all hear ourselves now make a vow that we should all aim to get really rich so that we can make role-playing games cool again. Well, well hold on. Two things. I know Alex is. I know Douglas is extremely wealthy, and um, I'm not sure about Hack, but I, I, I make so oh, much whoa. money. Oh, I'm, I'm definitely not extremely wealthy. <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm kidding. None of us, nobody in the game industry. There's like three people in the game industry that, that have wealth. Twitch, the kids, they all want to be Twitch streamers now. That's what's cool. Yep, that's right. That's, that's, what's that's cool. the new thing. That's what they're into. Yep, yep. You should think about starting a Twitch channel, Courtney. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I think you'd do really good there. You could, like, do your art. I've thought about it. Yeah. Yeah, well, you let me know if you need any other good ideas. Let, let, <laughs> let me know if anybody here ever thought they'd live to see the day when when the most popular shows on YouTube would be people watching people play D&D. I, I, right. can't, I can't even begin to respond to the rest I, of your I, comment, Alex. I, I, I just, just You brought up so much with the money thing. <laughs> I, I'm just gonna have to let it go. I uh, oh, that's oh, sing for us, man. 
let it go. Let no, I'm just going to start talking about the sun, and then the conversation goes to the same place it always goes. Yeah. No, listen, it's a it's a comprehensive theory that explains what makes something cool. It's the opportunity to get to the top while you're young. Well, okay, also, and but let's not uh, this not a uh, look past the effect mass media has on. I mean, it's it's no, I don't think it's any any kind of um, coincidence that uh, uh, the fortunes of D and D have followed uh, shows like Big Bang Theory, which I, I don't like the show, but it's been a cultural touchstone in that it's made it's for one of a better term, it's made geeks cool. And and I think that that's had a huge part. I mean, people like my grandson have grown. That show's what ten years old now. They've grown up with that show. My grandson's fifteen. So, I mean, he he's all he's known is that, you know, geeks are kind of cool. They're they're kind of they've been on TV and they and you know that, I was like, dude, when I when I grew up and there was a show about D and D was either uh, the kid was was killing other people because he was taken over by Satan, or the or it was like some big giant fat nerd who was you know. Pretending like he was an elf. I mean, there, there was no positive I, portrayals in, in in the media. I I don't know that Chuck Lore has ever portrayed D and D positively. I, I certainly know that he's portrayed it, but no. like I I just have to say I'm deeply, thoroughly unconcerned with the types of people that would watch a Chuck Lore show and what they think and feel. And I don't think it's relevant to our particular gaming niche. I, I, I see. I disagree with you there because he, he, first of all, he's on record as saying he, he laughs at the people not with him. So he, he doesn't respect uh, the nerds or the hobby or anything. But, but the effect is different than what he's expected the effect to be. And the effect is that the, the, these are very, this is a very, very popular show. And the effects that this had on, on gaming, I think, I think you could see it everywhere. And I, I think the fact that it's more accepted, I, I mean, people know what I do now. When I say I have, I run a gaming convention. Um, when I first started, everybody says, "Oh, you do video game video game convention? That's awesome!" I'm like, no, 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 I do role play, role play games. What's role playing games? Now, when I say I have a gaming convention, they're like, "Oh, like D and D, like um, uh, Big Bang Theory." I'm like, "Boom, there you go." I'm a, I'm a grognard and a hermit, and I don't like people, and I don't want them to know about what I like. I, and and I, I respect that. Unfortunately, I run a game convention. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got, to, I've got to tell people what I do. I mean, I want people to buy my stuff too, but I'd rather not really think about it very much. But I, I, I just noticed this this change in the population, like I said, over the last 11 years of the convention, where, where I first had to explain what we were doing and I would get blank looks to now when I mentioned I have a game convention, it's like, oh, we'd love to go. Uh, and, and they can rattle off you know, four or five RPGs they play, and, and they, they almost always inevitably mention the Big Bang Theory. It just becomes such a cultural touchstone, and, and and what you were saying, hack earlier, I or I agree totally. Uh, like I said, uh, Lore is, is he's on record as saying that he he thinks gamers are weird, and that uh, this is a show about a bunch of weird people. He never thought it would turn to the show it was. It was supposed to be making fun of these people, and then it was just oddly enough, it turned to people like, hey, you know, I've got autism too. <laughs> this is how I act. This is how my friends act. So this is awesome. I noticed that in the after aftermath of Fifty Shades of Grey, when I would tell people that I was a dungeon master, uh, I would get a weird look, and then I would oh, be like, no. "No, no, it's nothing like that. It's role playing." That didn't help either. Not, think, yeah. <laughs> Not that kind of role playing. No, I don't have a dungeon in my basement. Yeah. 
Not that oh, kind of tension. That, that probably would have made my childhood a lot more interesting if people would have thought that. But alas, no. I know. I, it's like that. Uh, it's like that. That YouTube video about what was it? The Summoners. I don't think I've seen that. One. Yeah, that's so. That's like twenty years old. Can't be twenty years old. It's on YouTube. <laughs> I think. I think two thousand, like two thousand, two thousand one, maybe ninety eight, something like that. It's old. Dang man, we're getting old quick. YouTube's old already. Good lord. Well, that was what, did I, what was I watching? Um, my wife and I are re-watching the Buffy and Angel, and. I think something was going to happen in like 2020 and she and I looked at each other and were like, Oh, ah, that's, that's next year. Well, it's like, then there was like, there was judgment day, right? That wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Didn't Blade Runner already happen or when was Blade Runner going to happen? I'm still uh, waiting for the flying cars. I'm still flying waiting for them. No, they, do you know, they have them. They're just not very, uh, convenient. It's difficult yeah. to fly things. Like they, they, they exist. It's just you don't want people to fly them. They'd be crashing all over the place. It's one of those things that sounded a great idea, and then we realized that everybody. Nineteen ninety six was the Dead Alewives Magic Missile of the Darkness skit. I see it as two thousand six. Where do you see it as nineteen ninety six? Uh, no, you're a meme. The Dead Alewives meme status mission year 1996 origin. The Dead Alewives. So that means it was it on the internet in 2000. It predated, it predated YouTube. Wow. There yep. must have been a video that was older than the one I saw because the one it, I saw came out in 2006. Yeah, it was. It was off of uh, the Summoner. They got together and they worked on the Summoner game. I've played both of them. They're okay. So I want to I want to ask a question because gotcha. we sort of mentioned the money thing, and we do have a third topic tonight. And I don't want to. Mostly, I just want to sit back and listen. But we do talk about bottling lightning, and it would be awfully nice, at least for me, if I could be the game design publisher, product manager, because I get to interact with great creative people, exchange ideas, and do something that that's a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I remember very vividly talking to, to Kevin Crawford the one or two times we interacted as I was like, oh, I have this great thing. It's 420,000 words. It's a great Norse inspired blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, you're doomed. I'm like, yeah, but I can do this. He's like, I have a mailing list of 60,000 people. I'm like, maybe I can't do this. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, right. I mean, but that's kind of what you I mean, I, I will routinely say to people that if my projects could routinely attract even a thousand or or twelve hundred or fifteen hundred um, backers or, or or sales or whatever. Um, it would really change, right? Because that's that's offset print run every time. It's whatever. But getting from where at least where I am, um, where you know a good product is about six hundred sales to that point where it's not a struggle is is you know obviously it's an uphill climb in a very crowded field so you know alex was joking about well you just all we have to do is make it you know make aspire to make a, a small fortune which you know usually means starting with a much larger fortune in this industry so i mean is there is there a path i mean what lessons have we learned in in how to do it because i certainly haven't figured it out yet 
Well, I, I, I'll talk about the convention because that, that's the convention circuit because that's what I know. Um, there's a lot of money to be made in conventions. Um, however, you, that's not typically to use to you break a thousand people. Like you were talking about your thousand copy or a thousand people, Douglas. You need a thousand people. The convention is the same way. Once you get a thousand people, you, you figure, let's say eighty eighty dollars a weekend for a weekend pass. Uh, when you get a, if you get a thousand people, you're talking eighty thousand dollars. That's not chump change. Especially when you know, if you re even after renting the venue, paying the gas, yada yada, uh, you're, you're left with a pretty good amount of money. Um, now that jump from a thousand to say five thousand, that, that that's a big jump. That that's what conventions like GaryCon, uh, Gamehole Cons, whether smaller cons are looking at. But if you look at conventions like Dragon Con and Gen Con, um, they make a lot of money. They make a lot of money. I mean, you you would be shocked at how much money those conventions make because at the point. You get that big, you're basically you're you're not even having to work to fill the convention up anywhere. It, it all it works on its own. Right. So between the between one thousand and five thousand is where you do most of your work. And and in, in, in almost any convention under thousands not making. I know we're doing we do five hundred every year. I know we don't make money. I mean we, we break even. We probably could make a little money if we really tried. If you really tried, we if you really wanted to, we could we could raise attendance and do a thousand. We just don't we don't want to do that. Uh, most Conventions unfortunately don't have the um, don't have that. They have to make money. Most conventions have to make money. We don't have to, and so they're wanting to get to that thousand mark. But um, I don't know if games is the same way. I don't know what the magic number is. Um, maybe uh, Alex might know better just from uh, his publishing. Uh, what, what's the magic number that you have to hit, that you should hit to be actual to say okay, look, I'm actually making some money now. Oh, I certainly haven't hit it. Um... Most of our revenue for Atar comes from our Kickstarters. And uh, within the Kickstarters, a lot of the revenue there comes from um, whales who will pay a large sum of money for the opportunity to customize an art image or a character class or a monster or a layer. Um, you know, for instance, on Player's Companion, which raised $15,000, $5,000 of that came from one person who wanted five custom character classes. Oh, wow. So, um, so essentially, Autark is carried year to year by its Kickstarters, and then everything else is essentially just maintaining brand momentum um, in between. Now, you know that might change in the future, but uh, you know I can't say I've I've broken the code on Drive Through RPG or anything like that. Um, I think I've figured out a way to maintain a good niche on Kickstarter that you know funds reliably, but that's about it. I have a Patreon, if anybody in the audience is feeling generous. <laughs> there you go. Pip that baby. Self-promotion is key. I have such a hard time with that. I know I need to, Pex is rolling his eyes in the background, I'm sure, but you know, need always be selling. What's the first rule of acquisition? Be a Ferengi. Um, but it's... Uh, it's funny because I, I we're actually but because we uh, cap out our attendance at five hundred, we're actually in the bizarre position where we don't like to tell everybody about our convention <laughs> because we don't want to get too big. Because the one thing we don't want to have to do is turn people away, which we we've almost had to do a couple of times. So we're in a really bizarre situation that because you you want to you want to I mean I want to be, go on podcasts, I want to go on shows. I, I had to turn a podcast down two years ago once because we we, we were full. And I said I can't go on the podcast and talk about our convention and say, well, by the way, we have, there's there's no more uh, no more seats left at the convention. So um, yeah, that that's that's something you have to do. You you, you have to be a self promoter. I mean, there's people in our hobby. I, I know 
just out of the blue, uh, James Raggy's an incredible self-promoter. Um, he works hard at it, and that's one of the reasons his company has become successful. I remember when he first started out, he was he was just absolutely hitting the streets, you know, promoting his company. Yeah, so I mean, sure. hit, hitting the so my experience in conventions basically boils down to a couple. I went to Gen Con 2017 and realized that that's not where you start; that's where you end. Um, right? I, I was there with the indie game designers network and and i you know either paid very little for my share of the booth or even was free i can't remember um and even then um you know of course i only had one product right so i had dungeon grappling um and you know there was that talk about the wrong venue right there was one guy i will never forget this because it was the indie game design right so it's all the stuff where they like to make fun of D&D. But someone walked up, someone picks up my book uh, with the awesome Marilith demon on the cover, even if I do say so myself, literally drops it on the floor and walks away because they didn't want to be sullied touching a, a, a D&D flavored book. I was like, wow, I have chosen poorly. Like in uh, Indiana Jones 3, I chose poorly. Did, did he have a man bun also? I... I didn't I, I was watching the book fall. I wasn't watching Man Bun. And he had a clove cigarette. He probably was smoking a clove cigarette. But but it was but you know but <laughs> the, 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 then a game hole. Uh, I wasn't selling. I, I wasn't selling. But some people would like. Oh, you know, I played your game. I want to buy your book. So yeah, sure. Um, this year I'm going to try and I, I have a booth at Convergence, um, which is local, right? So I don't have to pay hotel and stuff. But I mean, do do. I guess uh, how, uh, you know, I mean, I'm just, I guess it's just, you know, people like, oh, go to conventions. People see your stuff. I'm like, you know, the 16 people who played my game and the one person who said thanks or whatever, I, I, I didn't feel like that was, it, it, it feels like conventions are great when you've already made it, but I'm, I, I just don't know. And part of it is that I, 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 with the day job, it's, it's hard to dedicate the kind of time to do all the roles that you need to do, to do right? There's a uh, a buddy of mine. Uh, uh, um, I'm going to pimp his stuff. Ben Burns, uh, New Comic Games. Uh, he started out at conventions, and he just he just did a little thing, and he got interested in board games. He now has two board games published. Um, he just published his second Call of Cthulhu module, which is uh, through license to, to Chaosium, uh, and he's also publishing Top Secret. He's, I mean, he's he's become a publishing maiden now, but he started out at conventions. It, it, it depends on what kind of conventions you go to, and I, I'm I'm gonna. I'm going to pat my own convention on the back. Um, North Texas has been a really good start for a lot of companies, uh, Pace Center Games, some other ones, because it, it was the exact core audience a lot of OSR people needed uh, for Swords of Wizardry. Now, it wouldn't have been that good a convention for some other types of games, but for OSR games, it was actually a perfect kind of convention. I, I still think places like Gary Con, uh, the mid-level convention, probably three to 5,000, like Gary Con, Game Hole Con. Um, I'm not that familiar with a lot of other mid-level conventions like that but th th those seem to be really well for promoting kind of your uh, niche or osr type games um you, but you're you're right at what you said about about uh gen con i, I don't i don't think that the that, that there used to be a place you could go with your new game and, and just really get all these people who had never seen something before to, to you know to buy it or look at it and it's just gotten too big it's just it's just not that kind of place anymore 
Yeah, and a huge percentage of the attendees at Gen Con aren't really there for role-playing games anymore, in the same way that Comic-Con attendees aren't there because they're passionate about comics. So you end up paying a premium to reach an audience that is actually not very targeted. Yeah, those those are what I call it. I call those entertainment cons now, Comic-Con and Gen Con and Dragon Con. They're they're not necessarily game, any any niche con. They're, They're basically just for entertainment purposes. Right. I, I've made the decision that going to cons isn't worth it for me, um, so I, I no longer attend them at all. You, you, Alex, you would do great at North Texas. I'm serious. You, do <laughs> you really, you really would, because that, that's that's the niche that, that you that, that's that's a niche for your kind of game. Yeah, no, I believe I believe you. Nor maybe that should be the one I the one I do each year, but for the most part. Um, you know, I have so many people that dislike me now that I, I worry <laughs> something will something will happen at a con and it just blows up on the internet. I'm like, well, that was totally not worth it. Oh no, come to North Texas. Everybody dislikes us, and we, we all dislike each other, so it's perfect. It, it would be you'd fit in perfectly. I think it's um, impossible to be a public figure on the internet and not have some asshole dislike you. We've we've actually um that that's one good thing about smaller cons also is we've actually uh really never had a bad interaction like that i i i have had i've had i've seen some and heard of some at larger cons it do, does happen but uh typically the smaller your audience the you know the more niche I, your audience is yeah i think and not not to name names but i think like that was part of the issue mazowski had uh with grognardia is that when you reach a certain threshold some people are just gonna hate you and yeah. like I get, I delete death threats on my blog and I delete, they're angry because they feel that, I mean, like, it's crazy. One person was really upset that, um, I was talking about traps that had been, you know, covered in grim tooths or whatever. Another person was mad because of the way I felt about fiction first. They just get angry and they threaten and they hate you. And then they spread rumors and it's just, if you're going to be in the public eye, man. That's not where I thought you were going when you said you were talking about traps. <laughs> oh, oh, by the way, uh, Cordy, I want to give you pre- your uh, your best books of D and uh, I have almost all those, so I, I give that a thumbs up. That's a great column. Did you just Thanks. write? Yeah, that, that was really good. I I was checking them off <laughs> my mind and said, I wonder if you'll do this. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, I'm glad you got stuff like Midkemia Cities. That's yeah, that's yeah. a great product. Very, very, very underutilized and uh, under. I wish that stuff be reprinted. It's really good. I mean, it it was obviously written in 1983 or whatever. Like, it, it's it's got that Rolaid style complexity where they hadn't really um, smoothed out the actual procedure during play, but the general idea is very sound. And then the also a, a way overlooked uh, work is the uh, first uh, first box set for Forgotten Realms. It's it's probably the best sandbox ever published. Yeah, yeah, Janelle is responsible for that, I think, in large part, and and it's why. The Forgotten Realms was so popular in spite of the fact that every other single piece of media produced for it makes for bad role-playing. That uh, first that first product was so exceptional that it kind of just blew everything yeah, else out of the water. It was really good. Sorry to, sorry to hijack there, guys, but yeah, that, that was a good column. I, I like stuff like that because I'm always making my own top ten lists in my head, and so that, that, that hit most of them. I, it, I, I was just saying earlier, though, it hurts when people hate you. But at, at some level, you know, I just feel that, that you can't do anything about that. And the other option is just to stay quiet. 
I mean, if they if they if they come to my house and make me drink hemlock, then I will have lived according to my principles, and they're still fucking wrong. One of the things that infuriated me a couple years ago, we had some tension about our con, was the fact that none of these people went to our con, and yet they were they well, we need to shut that con down because these people are going to it, and these are bad people, and the guys running it are bad people. I'm like, you've never, and so they, you know, you've never been to. I'm like, wait, why would I expect anything different? Of course, they've never been. That these, you know, this they they are not our target audience, and and so you just have, you know, you just have to. You just have to live with that. And I, I'm, I'm sure. I, I mean, I, I spent 20 years working with bad quote unquote and broken people. And the only thing I have for him is empathy. Well, I'll let you have the empathy. I'm going to make an angry rant. Um, <laughs> so what you said about target audience, when I launched Axe, I had uh, a female gamer that I knew came to me and, and she, uh, found my game deplorable. And she said, I can't believe that you made it a sexist title uh, that promotes patriarchal thinking by calling it Adventure Conqueror King. What about, you know, women who want to play your game like, like me? And I said, well, it's a game about the imperial conquest of the weak by the strong. And it uh, leads into a turn-based miniature war game is that something that would appeal to you? And she said, no, not at all. And I said, well, why should I care what you think of the title then? And yet there's this sentiment among certain groups that every game should be for everyone. And that if you are, if you have chosen a niche that does not include them, then you are therefore a bad wrong thinker. I think it's ridiculous. I think like if, if, imagine if cars were made that way, you couldn't have a Jeep Wrangler because mostly conservative men drive those and you couldn't uh, uh, have sports cars because middle-aged men drive those. And so we'd all end up driving Priuses or whatever. So uh, I, I kind of reached the point where I just said, I'm making games for people like me. And if you don't like those games, then don't buy them. The end. Well, one thing we had to do with North Texas is we, Doug and I said, I've written, at the beginning and said, what, what's the kind of convention that we like? And we've kept pretty true to those principles. We put on the convention that we like. I, I, I've told some people, I don't think they'll like the convention. I, I really don't think you like it. And I'll, I'll tell them why. I mean, it's not necessarily because of the, the makeup of the convention. It's because the games that are played. And I mean, the fact we don't have card games, we don't have card games. We don't, we have very few uh, board games. You know, some people are much more board game oriented and there's just, there's a lot of reasons people wouldn't like our convention. I, I have no problem telling them, you know, d just stay at home. <laughs> You're not going to enjoy this convention. It's, it's just not, it's not your uh, ball of wax. Yeah. Ultimately, I, I think that's the, the, I mean, the exact same conclusion I came to is I have to do something that is meaningful for me. And I can't worry that somebody else out there doesn't like it. I mean, and, and I'm not talking about D and D necessarily. Like I have an art degree. I mean, at some point, like my art is frequently morbid and grotesque and abstract. And like, am I, it, I can't tell you the number of people who told me they don't like it. It's fine. You know, like it, 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 if I'm staying true to myself, then, you know, I don't know that I can do anything about people who are unhappy about that. I think that if they're spending time being unhappy and attacking creators, they're probably pretty miserable in their own lives. I think that's definitely true. And I think a lot of people get to the top, you know, you get to the top of the heap and, you, and you've done something a certain way your whole life. Then you realize that because you're more popular now, you're, you're dictated by outside pressures, whether it be stockholders or the, or the media or, 
just expectations. But you not even top of the heap. Just just anytime right. you become known as a middling whatever, people hate you. I, I in talking conventions specifically because that's where I. I have experience. I, I've seen people that have these conventions that start out small that have gotten to be five, six thousand, and they lament to me that they can't put on the kind of convention they want anymore because of these outside influences. Yep, yep. Douglas is writing us a letter. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, just uh, someone was chatting with me about, uh, so is this usually how RPG Coast to Ghost goes? And I was like, you know, <laughs> no, but I, I think that conversations like this are somewhat inevitable given the pressure cooker of the last couple weeks. It, it's, you, you almost just have to pull the Ethernet cord out of the computer and, and smash your phone to avoid it if you're in the gaming circle these days. There's there's only one thing in the pressure cooker though, right? It's just Zach and that's it. But it's well, but it's everywhere and that leads to speculation, justified speculation on okay, well, you know, he's not a very good guy and maybe it's he said, she said or whatever, whatever. But the general trend could be disturbing to some people and maybe well, should. I, I just, so, you know what? Like, again, we're on this. Right. Like, I've listened to Tim Pool. I've listened to, what, who are some of the other so people? We're, we're like, on this just because. Whatever. It just doesn't even. This is boring. Just shut up about it and talk about games. <laughs> well, so, no, I, I'm just saying this that, is that those people are making noise for themselves and, and just getting involved in their system of control is 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 like the goal of them is to be that sort of disruptive. And since nearly everybody, that's not what they want. I think uh, Sam Harris, you know, or, or Tim Pool, these people, you know, you're going to do anything that that isn't approved. You're going to get slandered. But at some point when they when they slander everybody and then, you know, people are like, well, it doesn't mean anything at some point. Right. Uh, and the two, yeah. funniest, two, two funniest things that came out of our convention get attacked a couple years ago was number one. We don't we don't have my my partner. um Doug is like a Luddite. He uses a phone from like 2001. And he, his phone was so old that they just, that they, they sent him a new phone and said, please don't use that phone. We, we don't even have that network anymore. And so, so anyway, he, we don't have a, tw a, tw a Twitter page. And when we were being attacked, we were like, Where are their, where's their Twitter page? We want to write something angry on their Twitter page. We can't find their Twitter page. There is no Twitter page. Sorry, there's none. We, we, we yeah, don't have tw Twitter is Twitter is out only for me. Yeah. Yeah. It is a broadcast non non two-way directional communication and i notice a lot of these people that that they have issues that a lot of times they i say are you on twitter yes that's your problem right there Twi twitter mm -hmm. there's, there's, i mean twitter can help your company but it's also it's it's a lot of just absolute lunacy there and is there is uh something that interacts poorly with our ability to manage and regulate emotions and have discussions when conversations are limited to short text strings with no connotation it does not it does not uh, sync well with anybody's ability to communicate. And, but it, that that's that is one of the that that's one of the things that that I tell people to just stay away from. And then the other the other funny thing that happened was when I had a person tell me once, I, I I wish I went to your convention so I could not go to your convention. And I said, oh okay, but the the point being is they they never attended our convention anyway. Yet they they were one of the loudest people that were griping about our convention. So I think that is true. What you say a lot of times, it, it, what these people say doesn't matter. They are a vocal minority that just 
they're just the next thing, the next big thing that comes along, they'll jump all over that. And they'll for, they've already forgotten about us. It's been two years. No, I, I, I'm not saying I don't think they matter. I just say, I just, I, I think that their current plan is not very good. And I speak to both extremist sides. Like, I don't think it's working. Um, but then I'm pretty bullish. And I know other people do think it's working. So I guess we'll see, right? What do you mean by working? Like, what, what do you think is the intent? Like, like I was kind of buying into it until I saw people that I knew uh, from extensive personal experience were not uh, the things that people were claiming. And and as I move forward, it became more and more clear to me that calling somebody like obviously I'm not alt right. I have I mean like I'm I spent 20 years of my life working with disabled youth and minorities and and victims and criminals and stuff. Like I I don't. I don't hate anybody. I don't have any sort of like I'm I'm a liberal. I vote Democrat. I volunteer Democrat. Like I, I'm just not exactly not, what uh, a crypto fascist would say. Well, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> but that, that's the thing is that I'm not. I'm obviously not outright. And and um, you know, when they're smearing people who I know, like that with just blatant falsehoods, and then I get smeared. Well, then you know you see through it, and and they're doing they're smearing people to such an extent that there's kind of a feeling like of a lot of people that it's just ridiculous. You know, obviously they're threatening in, in the sense that you were saying a small group can be domineering, controlling, but I see uh, in people's responses all the time, like the guy who owns the comedy club where Louis CK is performing. He's like, look, I know people don't like this, but if there's going to be freedom of speech in America, it's got to be on a comedy stage. Like they know, they know it's bullshit. And um, I think that there's going to be more and more pushback the harder they push for just because people see it. You know, you can't, you know, you can't say all these people are terrible, evil people. And you're like, I've known four of them my entire life. They, they go to church. What are you talking about? So I, I don't disagree with you on one level, but I will say as a counterexample, look at Slate Star Codex and his post today where he talks about I his, ner that. his nervous <laughs> that's, breakdown. That, from that's a that's a choice to be in public man right like those well, people it, are oh because funny i haven't seen it because funny link big thanks appreciate it um it, it is a choice that he made to be in public but you know the, the choice to be in public doesn't have to mean uh that you're gonna get called a nazi but he was right like doxxed harassed like calling yeah. his house yeah those things are horrible and super stressful and that's what i'm talking about like when i mentioned mazowski earlier or people like me dealing like that's just i think that's just a reality of existing in public in the present uh it is i agree with you i i just think it's not sustainable for our society I agree. We'll figure well, it out, though. Uh, huh? Putting the larger question of society aside, what do you think about the gaming world, then? Do you think it's sustainable in the gaming community? No. Yeah, no. So, so I mean, that's not good, then. <laughs> that's bad. No, it, it, I mean, like, D&D isn't going anywhere. Like, like it may not be sustainable, but I, I play D&D &D when nobody played D&D, &D, and so I know people will keep playing it. Well, I'll, I'll say this. So I have a good friend who works in conservative media, and he told me his expectation for the future is conservative drinking fountains. So in other words, separate but equal society essentially split along political lines. And that sounded ludicrous to me when he, when he said it. But I later learned that the Netherlands for many, many, many years was actually split in exactly that way. And it was called pillarization, 
And you had separate bars, separate newspapers, separate uh, sporting clubs, everything. And it was divided along your political lines with three different pillars in the society. And their society functioned that way for almost a century, um, quote unquote function. I, I see that as a very possible future for the United States. Like it very well could be the case that acts only gets played by people who are comfortable associating with whatever I'm alleged to be associated with or whatever. And like, that's just like a, a pillarized game. And then you've got, I, you know, another game. I have to say that our perspective has got to be skewed. There are 50 million people in America who have played D&D at some point. There are, there are estimated 10 million people with a game that happens at least monthly. I, you know, Trisha did that shout out. I linked to you earlier. I think that 99.9% .9 of people know nothing. Like the 400 people who are bitching on Reddit or whatever, they just don't have the voice, the reach, or the push. Like, like I think most people just like D&D. &D. They don't know who you are. They don't know who Zach is. They don't know any of this shit. No, I, I agree with you. The vast majority of gamers have no idea who I am. But if they ever did find out who I am, they all of the associated baggage would follow it. Yeah, but like that baggage to me, like because I obviously hadn't talked to you uh, a couple years ago, right? And all of that baggage to me, the things that I was told, the things I was said made it very obvious that they were lies and not the truth. And so I think that there's other people out there. And I think that the majority of people out there kind of know when they're getting fed this bullshit from an extremist. I, I hope you're right. I mean, I, I genuinely do. I, I, I would prefer to live in the world that you predict than the world that I predict. I'm such an optimist. One thing you, you guys, you just said you don't go to conventions, I, and I go quite a few every year. Um, I will say that, that that's a good point, um, Courtney, because I go to the conventions, and, and you're right, 90% of the people there have no clue what's going on. And you have to realize that we're more plugged in than your average D&D person. We go on Discord, we go on Facebook, we go on Twitter, uh, we go on, you know, we watch YouTube. There's a lot of these guys that have zero social media interactions at all. And they, they, they literally just go to conventions to play or they play with their group. They, they don't they don't know who Zach's. They have no clue who Zach's with. Yes. Oh, I know how to fix it for you, Alex. Um, go to Facebook and read the D&D 5e group. You will see some people who ask questions that are so dumb. You'll be like, oh, yeah, there's thousands of these people. And they don't know anything. <laughs> oh. <laughs> y yeah, you don't need to persuade me of that. So I'm just... Uh, uh, looking at present trends of polarization and arguing that if they continue, it will be bad. That doesn't mean they will continue. I, I agree. It, it, it is not healthy. And we have historical precedent for being shitty. So, so the, the secret is just to stay, people need to stay dumb and stay off social media. We wouldn't have to worry about this polarization. Uh, okay. So this has been going on for 90 minutes now. I have to do this. Um, why did you blink the hybridization thing? It went in my brain and now I feel uncomfortable, Alex. I didn't link it. That was Jeff Davis. I blame him then. Oh my yeah. goodness. You brought it up though, right? <laughs> no, no, he brought it up. I can't get it out of my head. Well, I think this is a good time to go into our product promotions then. Yeah, I'm really sorry about that. It is disturbing. <laughs> I mean, like deeply, fundamentally, like we are, we're, we're, um, we're literally man ate pig. Oink, oink. There's no bear, just the... For, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, there's a theory that uh, human beings are a hybrid between primates and pigs. 
And that explains a lot of very unusual features in the human physiology. Yeah, you and don't we, want to look at the eyeball picture. I can't get over the eyeball picture. Yeah, it's super duper uber creepy. Thanks for that, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, welcome Night to my Elf. hell. It's, Night it's Elf, a, yeah, cool. After hearing that, uh, half elves and dragonborn don't look so funny now, do they? It's a little bit no, of a sure Rococo don't. basilisk, right? Whatever the, the thing is that once you become aware of it, it suddenly means you're damned forever. It's a little bit like that. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, let's go into our product promotion time. If you got links, put them in chat and talk a little about what you're recently promoting. Uh, don't forget your discords, because I know three out of the four people here have them. Uh, well, I I'll go. Uh, I, I'm just because I'm aggressive like that. Sorry. Uh, my name is Courtney Campbell. I stream on Twitch as Eggenark Artist. I run the blog Hack and Slash. I desperately want to continue to live indoors. And so anybody who thinks that um, I provide some uh, useful something to the community, um, I take all major credit cards. I'm going to link up. Um, I, I run a convention, North Texas RPG Com. We're about half full, but I think we have another 150, 200 seats, and I'm going to link that in here. Uh, North Texas RPG Com. We have a gigantic guest list. Uh, I can, you know what? I'd probably post the guest. I probably post the guest list also, and we also. I also am a customer service Frog God Games. Mike at froggodgames.com if you have any questions about any Frog God Games products. Right now we're doing a Kickstarter for the Lost Lands. I'll, I'll link that up in the page too. And we're also doing uh, an Indiegogo. Chris, Casey Christophe is doing a little module called Encephalon Gorgers on the Moon, uh, which is weird, probably as weird as it sounds. And I will link all those up in the, um, in the chat. Alex, you want to take it? Sure, sure. Well, I'm Alex McCreese. I'm the uh, studio head of Autark. We publish Adventure Conquer King System. You can find, uh, find us at autark.co, uh, patreon.com slash autark. We have a Discord. You can DM me for an invite. Um, and we also uh, release all of our games on DriveThruRPG. The Patreon gives you access to a monthly um, uh, uh, Zine I publish called Axioms, which is sort of like Dragon Magazine if it were written by one person in his spare time, black and white. Um, and uh, we also have uh, a product by Courtney Campbell coming out soon called Irie of the Dread Eye that'll be released for both Axe and Fifth Edition. Um, wow, that sounds awesome, Alex. It's really good. And it's coming out next month. It's in layout now. Uh, and then uh, next month, I also have a book coming out called Arbiter of Worlds, which is um, a guide to being a game master. It's kind of like a spiritual successor to Gary Gygax's Master of the Game. As, as somebody who's read it, it's really good. Like mostly, mostly people whose DMs advice is, is just fucking terrible. And, and you don't learn anything. But uh, Alex's book is really good. I liked it. Courtney was kind enough to uh, write the foreword to the book. So thank you for that. 
Well, thank okay. you for not writing a terrible book, man. Hey, man, it's just a mutual admiration club here. So is there is, is there uh, questions from the audience now? Is that what happens? What what do we do on this show? No, I think we have to let Doug. I think we have to let Doug pimp himself. Uh, yeah, I'll be quick. Um, Douglas Cole from Gaming Ballistic. I got a Kickstarter going on right now. Uh, I'm attempting to expand out uh, the world that uh, you can play in for both Dragon Heresy um, and the uh, first third-party Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game book, Hall of Judgment. Um, if you want to find me on the web, uh, I've, I've put all of my stuff on um, the uh, the link in the, the first link. Uh, and the uh, I... I threw down a, a glimpse as to my crazy art direction um, in, a, in an update uh, shortly before we came online. So you can start to see what uh, I hope the Citadel will actually look like. Um, I also just completed and, and got a proof copy for uh, finally Lost Hall of Tear in a way that I'm really proud to see it. Juan Ochoa did a great cover, uh, 112 pages long, first native support for Dragon Heresy. Uh, if you already have Hall of Judgment, you'll recognize it a lot because I reverse ported a lot of it. Um, but uh, it uh, it really turned out pretty well, and the the, the printing is going to be something special. I got a uh, a taste for good paper when I first got Alex's uh, Axe Core book. I, I just loved the tangible feel of it, and that was one of my lodestones for the production values on Dragon Heresy. But, uh, you know, right now what I'm trying to do is uh, expand the uh, playable area in the setting. Um, and then in entirely different news, uh, in the ne over the next year, uh, I'll be doing at least two, if not three, Kickstarters for 16-page adventures for Steve Jackson Games' The Fantasy Trip, uh, probably in bundles of uh, four to six adventures uh, per Kickstarter, sort of do them all at once because it, it's a printing thing. Uh, uh, you can get a great deal if you print three or four 16-page books at once. But if you go with one 16-page book, they're like, yeah, I don't want to talk to you. So in any case, uh, you can expect to see those uh, throughout the rest of the year. And now I'll unmute the audience for Q&A time. So if you got questions for our host, uh, feel free to ask as I slowly unmute you one by one. If you don't have a mic or are uncomfortable talking, feel free to put your question in chat and somebody will read it. Well, after tonight's discussion, God knows what we're going to get. Yeah, we, yeah, we brought that on ourselves. We did. We did. So, Fear is the mind killer. Are you the Kwisad Haderach? No, I don't believe in chosen ones, and I'm certain, and certainly not a culmination of any sort of genetic breeding program, unless it was for like um, uh, putsy Europeans who got stomped during the entirety of World War II. Don't kid yourself, man. You're the you're the descendant of two hundred thousand years of human evolution, yeah. designed to make an optimal hunter gathering machine. Yeah, it's true, but not the Quizak Satarak. That's a whole other thing. Okay. All right, everybody should be unmuted, at least on the server side. So, got questions, guys? Ask them. I'll start with an easy one. Courtney, 
Have you ever lived in West Central Florida? Um, I, I've been. Why, why do you ask if I've lived? Uh, I grew up with someone who was in the military, and while they were stationed at MacDill Air Force Base, his last name was Bridges, and they named their daughter Gandhi. We have a bridge here called Gandhi Bridges. Um, we also have another thing that goes across between the two counties called Courtney Campbell Causeway. I was wondering if you were it's, related. It's, it's not only it's not only the it's it's my full name, isn't it? The Courtney Colin Campbell Causeway. I believe so. Yes. I yeah, was that, if that's you're related. actually my full name is on that causeway for sure. My my aunt lives in, or she did before she died. She lived in Orlando, and so I've spent time in Florida, um, but mostly in the retirement communities, which are just like super porny. Um, I guess. So no idea if you're related to the person it's named for. I'm 100% certain I'm not, as a matter of fact. I, I'm originally from up north. There's a famous television producer named Bill Battelotto that I found out only several years ago that I'm distantly related to. I wish I could have thought I, I could have known that back when uh, I needed money in the 80s. Well, apparently we're, we're distantly related to pigs, so I don't know what's true anymore. <laughs> we, we taste like pigs, don't we? We I have heard that, yes. We do, in fact, taste like pigs. You've mentioned that before. Uh, I don't believe you. Well, we do smell like them when we're on fire, so uh, take, <laughs> take my word for it, unfortunately. I bet we do. I'm sure that. we do. There's so there's my distant cousin Bill William Battelotto, who who was producer of such films as Men of Honor, Top Gun, and Alien Resurrection. Like I said, if I'd only known this in the eighties. Hey, Paisan, come on, hire hire your distant cousin. You didn't make it in the will. I I did DOS machine. I did say it was super porny. Like um, STD capitals are usually in retirement areas. They organize their lawns to communicate their sexual predilections. Well, I mean, when you can't give birth anymore and you're retired and have free time all day, what do you think they do? The answer is they have orgies. I guess I guess I'll be retiring early. Shoot, I'm not that far away now. We're gonna play D and D. That that's what we're gonna do yeah, when we're right. old. Yeah, you're right. That 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 is the cool thing about getting old. We'll, as long as we can remember how uh, a descending armor class, we'll be okay. Galandra all asks about culture building. This is funny because Alex's answer is probably going to be a lot more detailed than mine. Uh, I figure out what makes sense from the random table rolls. I think Alex probably has a more in depth method of building cultures. Uh, culture building, do you start with? So first I create a tectonic map and then I evolve the species from dinosaurs <laughs> until I have tribes of primitive humans. And then I move them around the map and create cultural conflict to create little nation states with their own language trees. Um, and then I build them up from there. And that's the first five minutes. Yeah, I don't think he's kidding. <laughs> I mean, like he's joking, I, but he's also I'm, not joking. I'm, 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 not, I'm not kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's such a useless answer, I know. Amazing writer, yeah. If you, stop, Pex. I'm going to 
Next <laughs> At least for me, what I wound up doing is I had a very definite thing I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to explore a world that uh, where I could really delve into the Norse mythology and the sagas and some of that culture and and the more that I dug into it, the more that it seemed an ideal culture from which to embed a lot of classic D&D or dungeon fantasy tropes. Um, and the more that I dig into it, the more I found out how I, I didn't even scratch the surface of how right I was. Um, so I, I started with saying, OK, well, vaguely Vikingish, And then I built uh, a map uh, of, of the realm basically by overlaying my fantasy world um, onto the state map of Minnesota um, and then built out from there. Um, but what I wound up doing, uh, at least as I've been doing the Kickstarter, is approaching it. Uh, I, I used uh, to do my world building. I, I uh, stole with permission Alex's uh, Axe um, economy uh, system, uh, modified it for fifth edition. But independently, I've been getting um, research from farmers and stuff. And I know that Alex has probably tapped a lot of the same sources. Um, but I've been generating these villages and towns and stuff uh, and figuring out what the locals, very local villages and cities care about um, and therefore what their nobles care about and therefore what their people care about and stuff like that. And, and it very much flavors the microculture within the macro culture, even within this Viking flavored realm. So that's kind of, but mostly what I would do is every time I needed to ask myself, what do I need to do here? I wanted to ask the question of what's the most gameable, what provides the most interesting choices so that we can kill things and take their stuff. I wish I were better at doing that, but I, as a world builder, I, I always end up thinking, thinking, what would realistically be the case rather than necessarily what would be the most fun? And I think as a result, it sometimes forecloses me from seeing really interesting opportunities. Um, well, and, yeah, and, and you and I come from a very similar background, right? I mean, I wrote The Deadly Spring, right? So the, the, that infamous GURPS article that, that led to Jeffro and I being very good, uh, pretty good friends. Yeah, yeah, um, of course. I, right, I used he, to read he, your blog right, all the time, yeah. Right, yeah, you know, when I actually had things worth saying on it. Um, the, uh, but, you know, it's, I, I came from a place of deep simulation. I mean, I'm an engineer by training, and so I always wanted to figure out reality. And I've effectively tried to deprogram myself from that um, a bit to, uh, to, to try and get away from that niche. Um, but if I start there and I frequently do, and then edit it out, oh, well, here's, I know exactly how many pounds of wheat, barley, oats, and orchard produce happen in this village. Yay. That's awesome. And then I need to look at that and say, and we just say every year they produce 72 tons of carbs, right? So I'm, I'm starting to, I, I start with the deep stuff and then I edit it back because I really try and ask myself these days, you know, what works at the table? Because that was a real flaw in a lot of my early writing. Uh, technical grappling suffered from this. Some of my early pyramid articles were very informative, but were less usable than they could have been. And, and I've really tried to 
make it game useful. And frankly, that's a direct result of my association with OSR people. You know, it, it, it's the, the rules light. How can we do this as simply and most friendly as possible uh, has been hopefully, I, I think, a beneficial impact on my writing. I'm, I, I mean, that, that's my primary design goal is like uh, how things work and manage and play as part of what inspired the, the companion sort of uh, initiative style system I did in Perdition. I, I think that Alex is being modest. His game is frequently the random tables that I'm rolling on to determine the reality of the situation the players are in. And it's designed very much for things that come up and play, for at least from my experience running it. Uh, let me throw something out you th- at you three, uh, um, Alex, Courtney, and Doug. Uh, so w- w- you you've created your own world. What, what do you when you read a published scenario or a published campaign? What do you see that you think? Oh no! Why did they go there again? I'm so tired of reading about that. What, what is the most stereotypical whatever that you just see in the campaign world that you just turns you off? It, it doesn't matter how. To, I don't know how anybody else is going to answer, but it doesn't matter how stereotypical it is. It matters how well it's done. Like you can take the most stupid basic story and and make it good if it's well done. Uh, it, it, I don't think it has to do with the topic. I think it has to do with the quality of the creator. That's the safe answer, Courtney. Come on. No, I, I. But but it's but it's true, right? I mean, you can you can like. So so I'll I'll. I'll throw myself on the promotion bus here. I actually think that the Viking world that I'm creating um, is really engaging. Uh, you know, I, I do festivals, I do little bits of law and culture that influence how people think. Uh, you know, I've included fleeting, you know, insult contests and stuff like that. Um, and, and I really think it comes alive, but, you know, at, at some point I was, uh, I can't remember what, maybe it was on here or somewhere else. I was like, oh yeah, I've got a North based thing. And someone, you know, some, you know, helpful, uh, 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 commentator says, oh, Vikings, that's just been done to death. Yeah. But I don't think it's been done to death. Well, that good. That's a good point. <laughs> well, um, there really is. So seriously, yeah, yeah you're, you could do Vikings bad and you could do Vikings good. I was just funny because I was at a convention once, and so my own campaign world, in a nutshell, there, there was a there's a huge world disaster two thousand years ago, and the world's recovered, and so there's only two thousand years of history. Um, so somebody else is describing their campaign world to a to a designer who should not be named, and I was listening in, and he's describing it, and the designer says, "Oh, another campaign world where there was a big disaster, and everybody's recovering from the disaster. That's just been so overdone." Well, D and D's post-apocalyptic. I mean, it's it's exactly. it's literally the setting. It's a post-apocalyptic. Setting. Like, Come there's on. not there's not a setting of D and D that didn't have a disaster. Otherwise, there wouldn't be ancient destroyed cultures to explore dungeons. Of. It's just such a great tro- I mean, it's a great trope because there's so many ways you could do it. And I was just I was like, God. That was that's my world too, dude. Calm down. You know so what you're saying about the post-apocalyptic D and D reminds me of something I learned recently taking a class on novel writing, which is a lot of things that look like aesthetic decisions are actually functional decisions. Like if you think of a table, you know, a table has a certain number of legs in certain places, partly because the table designer thought that looked nice, but partly because tables need to have legs in order to stand up and hold food on them. Um, you know, and likewise, uh, uh, James Patterson says that if you're going to write a, um, a thriller, 
your protagonist had better be, you know, a rogue cop or rogue CSI agent or whatever. And he said, why does he have to be rogue? Because if he's by the book, then it's a procedural, not a thriller. So, you know, the, the, the choice of genre and style that you've chosen determines the aesthetic. Yeah. And I think that's the case with D&D. Like the reason we have so many post-apocalyptic settings is because you need a post-apocalypse for D&D to function correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And so what irks me are settings where people try and be creative and they don't understand that what they are uh, uh, unleashing with their feverish imagination simply doesn't work because it, it isn't functional. Blue Rose. We got a question from DOS Machine here. I second that. Uh, my, my mic fell out of my ear. What what did you guys second? Nothing. I sneezed and it sounded yeah. suspiciously yeah. like the phrase blue yeah. rose. And I agree with you totally. Oh. We got a question from DOS Machine here. Maybe I missed this, but I'd like to hear if people felt their best bang for the buck was in terms of reaching their audience, the people that really wanted their product. I, I, I'll, I'll go first because I don't really have a product. I have a convention, but uh, Facebook was the game changer for us. Uh, once we started doing stuff on Facebook, uh, we're up to about 1,000 people on the Facebook page now. And that, that, was, that was my big thing. We don't, we don't do Twitter. Um, although I, I see the use of Twitter for a lot of people, I just for us it was not a it wasn't something to help. But also word of mouth helped helped a lot. We went to conventions and passed out a ton of flyers and talked talked to a lot of people. And, and we get people to this day that come in and say, "Man, I heard about your convention from somebody who went to it." And so we just decided to come. We've had people fly in from Rus- as far away as Russia because they heard about our convention on a podcast, which is just it's crazy. But You know, I think for me at least, um, you know, uh, uh, the the people who know of me know of me through GURPS, through my writing on firearms, sometimes through my blog, um, usually for writing on firearms. So for me to delve into the biggest market was maybe uh, uh, not necessarily the best thing. For me at least, I seem to get my biggest uh, kick uh, when I will go on a show like, you know, uh, James Intracasso's Tabletop Babble, that's usually where, you know, uh, before everything kind of congealed here on the tavern, uh, I would get a big kick uh, if Eric mentioned my stuff. Uh, now I think there's so much that it's lost. It's not, I mean, it's it's part of pulling all these disparate influences under one roof uh it's it's good for networking but it's uh the uh you really got to work it to have a spike in the signal to noise ratio there but it's 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 tough i i uh the the bet you know let me let me answer uh uh, dust machines question in maybe a better way the best thing that i've seen to win in this is when people play your stuff and talk about it Right. Oh my goodness! I played a game with dungeon grappling, and it made it more fun. I don't need to hear anything else than that to keep me writing and to keep me working. For me, I would say it's Kickstarter, um, and that actually speaks to a point that um, Golan Janelle, uh asked. So 
what Kickstarter allows you to do is to price discriminate and offer you know, a deeper or superior or more customized product for people who are more invested in your product, um, which uh, is a phenomenon that made Magic the Gathering the most successful game in the world because you know, you, the more you were into it, the more money you would spend. So I think um, Kickstarter has allowed me to create what I would call a niche game that um, has a very specific focus that not everyone is into and intentionally isn't designed to be the accessible game for everyone. But for the people that want that experience, it's the very best game for that experience on the market. And so they're willing to support it. And um, you know, in terms of how do you survive you know, being deplatformed de before being proven guilty, et cetera, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to you need to figure out a way to own your own platform, own your own audience, have your own places where you can market that are not foreclosed to you by third parties. I think too much dependence on third parties ultimately becomes destructive. That's actually that and the fact that they do take a lot of the money is the reason I'm very wary of drive through RPG. Um, plus the... Uh, the fact that both the drive-through printer and the Amazon Create Space that's now folded into whatever, I'm just not wild about their quality. So yeah. I'm I'm purposefully restricting what I'm doing to my website and places where I can send books that I have printed special to, which is which makes it a little harder. I mean, there's a certain ennui associated with the fact that every single dollar I earn gets taken by somebody else. I mean, if it's not drive-through RPG, it's the government or my landlord or like you know, like I just don't get the money. Like I make it, and then everybody else gets it, and that's fine. Like I'm okay with that. But, but like not having an income stream because of the percentage that they take from you. I mean, it's all gets taken. Taxation is theft, man. Come on over here. To I, I don't. Class. I don't believe. I don't believe that. But. But like, you know, you look at your income and you're like, oh, that is a very large number that 98% has been taken from me, you know? And you're like, I get that. I understand. And partly it's just that, you know, I don't want, this is not a wah wah, but, you know, as a professional R&D engineer, I do okay. Um, and my, my, hob my hobbies are things like sitting in front of the computer and writing. So you know, I don't go out and play 18 holes of golf every weekend. And that can, you know, I, that can get expensive. I don't drive expensive cars. I don't, I don't, I don't. Um, so for me to replace that with what I really want to do, uh, I have to be like one of the most successful indie guys in the industry. So it's a, it's a big, so it's, it's a substantial ladder. I, I'm a minimalist. So that makes it a little easier for me. Since you're doing so well, did did you know about my Patreon? <laughs> That's a fair question. I did know about it since you've mentioned it a few times. Uh, well, you should check that out. Since you're I, prob doing so well I should probably check it engineer. out again. That's true. I walked right into that one. You, you, that was an in, yeah, that was an that was an inside fastball. You had to take a swing at it. No, nope, awesome. nobody, nobody is getting into the RPG business because they want to get rich. Like I am not interested in the accumulation of material goods. I'm not interested in material pleasures. I, I, I mean, like 
I'm kind of I, like whether or not I'm going to have soda is a big vice for me, right? Like I know that they published some numbers that said middle class was seventy six thousand, and like I am below the poverty line, and I'm fine. Like <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. You know, like I, you just set your my expectations are not that I need a bunch of things. Like I own my car, I live I live modestly. So I mean, if you're gonna be in the RPG, you know, like Michael Curtis isn't driving a Porsche around. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're not going to get to drive Porsches. Hold on. You, I, you'll be lucky to drive a running car. Oh, I've got, hey, I've got a 15 year old truck. I and drive. and that's not, that's not to deal with, you know, things like child support or medical bills that everybody has. Like, there's just, there's just, you're not going to get rich doing this. You know, you, you, you can, you can make a, you can sustain an existence. You can make a living. There's, there's very few people that work in the gaming industry. I know this from working at Frog Guide now for a few years. They do this full time. You, you just you can't. It, it's not sustainable full time. Yeah, and I'm not sure if it was ever meant to be. I really, I, I think for a while you were able to. Back when TSR was hiring tons of people in Wizard Coast, I, I just don't think it's sustainable at this. Point. Well, I, I think it's possible to be an artist full time. I mean, Journeyman does it, and I, I'm doing it. I mean, like it's definitely doable to be a writer. Michael Curtis does it. Like there are working full time people. It's just like I'm a writer. I, I'm not like I write modules, and it's mainly D and D oriented. But I do commissions. I have t I, like I just have like nine income streams basically, and none of them are very much. Like somebody asked me in my Discord, or somebody asked me in one of these shows, they were like, "Well, how do you get up to about you know two hundred dollars a month? That's what I'd like to make." And I'm like, "Man." That's that's about what my different income streams do. I just have a bunch of them, you know. So I spent about 15 years of my career in digital media. And, um, you know, the, the digital media business model was accumulate a big audience and then sell them and then show them ads. And, uh, you know, but the ads were being bought by other companies who over time also were trying to give their product away for free, like music companies. And the... Um, and the audience could just block your ads. And so uh, it it rapidly became really one of the worst industries in the, in the world to be in. And if you look around right now, almost every digital media company is in absolute collapse. The, the company that acquired my own business went bankrupt this year, mass layoffs <laughs> at a bunch of them. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a bad scene all around. So, uh, you know, one good thing about the gaming industry is ultimately you make products that you sell for more than they cost. And I think that's a really great business model. Like I sell books and each book is worth more than it costs and I make money from them. And the rest is just a question of scale and marketing. Yeah. So. Yeah. Like a lot of what I'm selling is like people, my sales numbers aren't so good because I have a huge audience. My sell numbers are good because I'm creating an emotional connection. Like people are invested in in more than just the creative work; they're invested in me as a brand, and I really think that, like Alex was saying earlier from Kickstarter, it seems to be less raw numbers and more individual, heavily supporting Patreons. Like I have half a dozen people that make up, I would say, the majority of my like income from things like Twitch and Patreon. They're totally. just they're just high dollar backers, right? Yeah. So you just got to find people who like you, like in the in the Middle Ages when musicians would have patrons. Totally, yeah. That's you for me, Alex. You're you're my patron. Uh, I suppose I am. Uh, you can you can call me uh, Iulius Kaiser. Hail.
it has a, it has a nice ring to it at least <laughs> any other questions from anybody in our audience we, we had one kind of far up there that I think Alex is going to take on oh was that the one by uh, Golondrinel yeah you want you want to take that on? Yeah, so I, I alluded this to this a little bit, but um, you know, obviously, for instance, Lamentations of the Princess is going to be taking a very big hit to its revenue. Um, it's definitely difficult to survive. Um, you will see if you get under attack or 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 sort of a demonetization campaign begins against you. You will lose a lot of revenue. You will lose a lot of customers, um, but you won't lose all of them. And have you talked to Jim? Did you did you talk to Racky? Uh, I've reached out to him twice, but he's currently not talking to me. I, I I think his head is just elsewhere. Oh well, I I have I I'm working. Uh, there's I have a book coming out from Lamentation soon, and I've got a project I'm in process with with him. But I, I'm not entirely convinced that the hit is going to be that large. Like I'm kind of aware of what his sales numbers are, and even if every single person and all of their upvotes didn't buy, it's not significant. Good, good. I mean, I'm glad for him because he's built a great business, and he doesn't deserve to have it go down the tubes. I mean, and what happened with me when I got ostracized, at least in my experience, you know, when I wrote that blog post and I said, suck it, extremists. I'm tired of your systems of control. Uh, what happened is I lost like 10 people who were supporting me at like a dime or a nickel. And I picked up like 15 that were supporting me at a dollar. Like, I really think that the momentum is behind the, the great, uh, on the great quiet mass it is is what it's looking like to me. I hope so. I I, I we we found that that the most vocal lunatics are on Twitter, and if you're not on Twitter, they don't they don't seem to bother you. And and we I've noticed I can't tell you how much time, how many times I've seen the comment that uh, I I wish uh, boy if I only went to your convention I'd stop going to your convention. I'm like okay. I mean, the, the, the net gain of zero. I mean, I, I don't know what to say about that. So you never went to our convention and you're not going to go now. I, I, you know, doesn't yeah, the point me. of the extremist posts was, is that their whole job is to ensnare you in their little cottage industry of outrage. Right. And, and they're a minority and the stuff they're selling, isn't that appealing to most people. That's why they're a minority. I just, I, I feel that, um, like part of it was deliberate. My post was deliberate because I, I wanted specifically to appeal to people who were feeling the same kind of just exhaustion from it as me. And I mean, it resulted in, I'd say a $90 increase in revenue monthly um, from doing that. I, it's not substantial, but you know, every time helps. Well, I think they just rallied to you because you're very 18 charisma and suave voice. Is it is it eighteen? I wouldn't put it at eighteen. I don't know, man. I'm a bad judge. I I, I think that was a good point uh, about the fact that Raggy will survive because I think he will too. And I, matter of fact, um, I, I I wouldn't be a hundred percent surprised to see Zach publish something in three or four years. And in, in, <laughs> he's he's yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I've just he seems very um, delusional. He seems not connected with the reality of the I situation. He, he, I, I don't think he realizes that that he's. I, I don't he, believe that. I think he does. I don't know what's going on. You know. I, I just 
man, I, I can't get into it. It's just that's that's a whole freaking the psychological discussion. But I, I think he'll he'll publish again. We'll see him publish again. I, now, whether anybody will buy it or not, I, who knows? I don't know. I, I don't think he thinks he's done. But for the question of deplatforming de as a whole, I mean, it's it is scary, and especially if it happens to you, I mean, it's really scary because I I know when people say stuff that the the, the number one thing you want to do is disagree with them, and and from my experience, the number one thing you don't want to do is disagree with them because it, it, all you do when you get into these uh, battles online and social media or on forums is you just uh, basically keep the fight going, and we found yeah. That's Best thing to do is basically just do nothing, and I've had and just totally ignore it. That's that's what we did. I know this seems stupid, probably to a lot of people, but I've had two epiphanies um, since I've been doing this gaming stuff. And the first one was a post I wrote where I was like, I made a terrible mistake. I was asking for people to get in touch with me when I used my when they used my stuff, and it just wasn't happening. And I just was like, well, if that's I'll just take money instead, you know, like like the fact that I wasn't charging for it, I think was a mistake. And then the second one was this recent one where you know I have to think about what I'm doing online, and as much as I'd like to retweet a bunch of stuff that matches my political views. The reason people are watching my stream or paying attention to my content is because that's an escape from the other. And so I don't need to be one of those voices. I need to shut up my own personal mouth and just do the business and not get involved in the drama. All right, taking last call for questions. Something, uh, something VB Word just said. You know, there's a there's a great scene in the Fountainhead when um, Tui, who's kind of the villain of the book and is constantly slandering and disparaging Howard Rourke, finally meets Howard Rourke at a at uh, like a cocktail party, and uh, and he says, you know, I, I've spent the last several years ruining your reputation and attacking you on every front. You know, what do you think of me? And Howard Rourke just looks at him and says, um, I don't think of you. And I think that's pretty much the best way to deal with a lot of your haters. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly the tactic. I mean, like what? I screen cap it, I delete it. Like there's no point in responding to anybody who's telling you they're going to kill you by squishing your head like a grape. Like what are they, what kind of emotional state are they in that they're writing that in a comment section on the internet? Like just, just, you've got to be so miserable. Agreed. Agreed. So say we all. That's so say we all. Head. It is known. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, thank you very much, gentlemen, for coming in. This was a very different coast-to-coast. Uh, -coast. Hey, there's only been four of them, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. The bar's low. Uh, do we have <laughs> Do we actually have a typical coast to coast yet? I don't think. It, in what way was it different? Uh, it, was, it was just a different one. It's more of a what do you think of this from a morality kind of standpoint and going back and forth like that. Uh, every breakfast co every breakfast club and coast to coast is different because it's never the same conversation. Thus goes our slogan. Well, it was obviously the one of the four of the brightest, most intelligent minds in the gaming industry for once. I mean, you know. I, I I don't want to slag on my guests in the first two shows, but you know, come on. We blew all our budget putting it into Courtney's uh, Patreon. 
Well, good. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, you. I, I, I want, I like the indoor. See, you do have 18 charisma. And, <laughs> and we're, we're, Hack and Slash is really good. Uh, I, I don't read, I read like three blogs, and that's one of them. It's really good. Same here. Well, thanks, guys. I, I, I'm kind of like, uh, you know, when they talk about like Japanese otakus with the computer, I'm like that, but for D and D, it's just my my thing. You're the Gojiro of my blogging. Oh, thanks. <laughs>